say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but what if those intentions were more sinister from the beginning? I'm Nikki B, resident pop culture expert, here with utopian history expert Danny McCarthy. We're going to take a deeper look at the sci-fi movies that we love and see if maybe what we always thought were warnings were really blueprints. Join us as we pull at the crimson threads in our beloved cinema. Welcome to The Road to Hell. I'd buy that for a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Today we're talking about RoboCop on the Road to Hell Film Reviews podcast. I am Daniel McCarthy, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Nikki P. How are you doing today? I... I'm doing wonderful. Uh, this comedy gold slash amazing gore fest that we watched. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, I had been wanting to rewatch this movie, I don't know, pretty much all last year. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And I remembered somewhere in the back of my head, I just knew that this was something worth talking about and that it had some kind of important social commentary. But I didn't know what it was. And now I do. <laughs> Well, it's it's Verhoeven, is a guy's name, and all of his movies are very <laughs> talk aboutable. What else does he do? I mean, the most important one would be Starship Troopers. Okay, I have not seen that. So maybe this is his only movie that I've seen. I haven't even seen any of the other RoboCop movies. Oh, dude, the, this one is is a much stronger movie. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have as good of commercials. The commercials are the best part in the second movie. Okay. They're like way more insane, which I, I mentioned at the end of our last podcast. <laughs> it's part of why I like watching these is because I love watching the the commercials. Right. If you've never seen Starship Troopers, that that hurts. Add it to the list. Ugh, dude. I mean, every time we talk about the list, man, I got to add more stuff that's... I don't know how anyone has lived this long without having seen it. I've actually seen like snippets of it, but I, not the whole thing. Well, I mean, if you if you've had you know done any research on like Nazism, of course they come up because it's what he was going after. But that's actually based on a, a book. Yes, and I've heard the movie and the book are very different. They're different enough. Like tonally, like tonally. Oh, well, tonally for sure. But that's because what you see in RoboCop is his style: very campy, very comedic, while tackling the bigger stuff. He he's just makes an entertaining movie. Gotcha. Like the commercials in the <laughs> Starship Troopers movie were like they're out killing aliens and like yeah, <laughs> like that's that's, funny. that's the best stuff. So the commercials for people who don't know what we're talking about in the movie RoboCop, they're just randomly sprinkled into the to the movie these clips from television like in that world. So you'll see news broadcasts and then they'll be broken up by a commercial that's just strange kind of advertising some futuristic product. Everything is produced by the same corporation. OCP. Yeah. OCP. Um, And the thing, well, the thing about the commercials is it's, it's his way of doing world building. It's exposition, like for how everything goes without just explaining and outside in the world, this is what things look like. It, It just immediately immerses you in that world through the media of that world. Right. And I think it's a very effective way to do it because, I mean, you understand very quickly the kind of world that we're in. Like, just see, it's hyper-violent. It's, it is the, like, as far as a fascist state goes, it is card call, as card-carrying as you could possibly make that. Yep. Which brings me to the, the topic that you really wanted to cover today is the idea of a deep state. And the, the reason, I, I, I agree, it is probably the most interesting concept that uh, because it's something that gets over talked about now and under understood as to how it pertains to our world, but in this world, it it is honestly just a mirror of exactly how things happened in the real world to create the deep state, and it's this intermingling of you know government forces being bought off and paid for by public forces, u- utilizing models that they learn from the mob. Yeah. So essentially, what this movie's so basically the antagonist in the movie is actually a structure. So there's this like mob bad guy, drug dealer. He's obviously a bad guy. In fact, it's his mob that actually puts our hero in the position of becoming the RoboCop in the first place by 
blowing his body to smithereens, essentially, with shotguns. So there's that. That's one bad guy. But then you've also got this corporate entity that's, you know, like a corporation. It's more subtly evil. It's evil, but behind the scenes. And, well, we'll get to this in a minute, but the corporate structure and the mob are actually working together. They're working in concert. But then also the police force itself, which is supposed to be the good guys, of course, protecting the innocent and keeping the streets clean. They are under the control, the explicit control of the same corporation that's controlling the mob. So you've got the corporate structure at the top controlling, artificially controlling both the good and the bad, right? And so there's this managed conflict basically taking place on the street in order that the corporation can push forward its agenda. There is one key feature that we need to mention, and that is the monopoly power of OCP. If there were multiple companies fighting for turf, fighting for territory in this city, it would be non issue because there would be an incentive to serve people. But because OCP is the only company standing, they get to utilize the police force as their personal police force, and they don't need or care about the say from the public. Right. And I think, you know, like I said, I haven't seen the later RoboCop movies. I don't know what direction they go in. But Number, number two is the only one worth watching, yeah. and it's literally just a continuation of this. They end up putting the Ed 209s out as like a street force. Aha, perfect. Okay, so this is kind of where I see the logic of this movie going. Uh, the the end game, if the corporation gets its way, basically, the logical conclusion to what it's doing is to actually replace the police force and ultimately to turn on and do away with the mob when the time comes. So this is the nature of political relationships of expedience and convenience. You know, a less powerful organization pairs up with a, a larger organization because the less powerful organization is able to carry out wet works or black ops, for lack of a better term, in the dark that the larger organization doesn't want to be embroiled in. Right. So they'll pair up with this small time crime organization, let them get away with their crime because it's a quid pro quo arrangement. But in the end, the larger organization has no problem setting up the smaller organization to be busted or caught or destroyed, right? So there's always somebody willing to come in and fill that role when they when they need it again. Exactly. So the small fry is always expendable is what I'm trying to say. And to just I don't know, let's try and figure out a real world ex world example. How about Saddam Hussein or how about the Mujahideen guerrillas in Afghanistan? how quickly these figures were turned on when it became convenient for the larger power, the U.S. government, that had like literally put them in place, <laughs> you know, when the narrative shifts, when the agenda changes, well, suddenly this smaller organization that once served our purposes, now it'll serve our purposes by being the bait, essentially, by being destroyed. So it's a cautionary tale, this movie, because eventually the mobsters who think they're like, They've got some semblance of autonomy or control. Eventually, they will find out they don't. Eventually, they will become expendable. And same with the police force, who thinks that this corporation is just there to, you know, give us better equipment and try and figure out a better, more efficient way to patrol the street. No, their end game is to get rid of you. You know, you're only you're only a means to an end. And that's true for both the, the cops and. Well, in particular, we'd say in the police force, if you go out right now and you look at all the tools that exist to keep kind of police working for the federal system, police system, mm -hmm. you know, through criminal or civil asset forfeiture and things like that, where they get a kickback on the amount of money that they actually pull from people for the feds. Hey, we've got all this surplus military equipment, you know, but if you accept that, you got to go the drug, you know, car, we work for us to keep drugs off the streets and you have to police the things that we want you to police as priority. Yeah, so prioritization obviously is a is a biased thing. It's a value judgment system. And if a corporation that at one point in the movie, basically, I don't know that they really come out and say it, but this company, at least this branch of the company that we're concerned with, they're basically an arms dealer. Like it's a military weaponry production company. At one point, the guy says, we are the military, right? Well, the thing that I like is they keep it messy. Yeah. Because if you if you pay attention and we're in these meetings, we're seeing the characters there. You have the, the owner of the company who legitimately just wants to make the area safe so that he can build this skyscraper that he wants to build to make the city better, okay? Sure. That is legitimate his goal. 
and it's you know maybe a little naive. Whereas you have the uh, the main character who's like the second in command who creates the Ed Two Hundred Nine project, and uh, you know his goal is you know, and you don't find this. You find this out later where he he's ostensibly making something that's going out to police people, but really what he wants is to sell this to the military. And he, he brings out his project, the Ed 209, and it f- goes haywire, fails, not safe to put on the street because the owner, that's really what he cares about. And so this upstart says, well, hey, I got this other project that's going to be much safer, much easier to work with, which is the RoboCop project. Ultimately, as the story goes, the upstart's trying to give the owner what he wants, which is the best thing for the job. Whereas the second in command eventually kills that guy and goes, fuck you, this was about the money. You know how much money we were going to make selling this to the military? What do I care if it works or not? And that's, you know, I think not by mistake, that's the scene where it's revealed that the mobster, the mob boss, who up until this point has just seemed like this almost like Joker type of character who's just a complete sadist and psycho, that's the point. You find out, oh shit, he's working with the second in command at the corporation when they kill the guy that started the RoboCop program. I have to ask, how much fun is it the fact that Red Foreman is <laughs> the main villain in the movie? <laughs> I know, I know. That gets me. That got me when I was a kid, and it gets me now. He does a good job, too. He's a really good... He's a great actor. The only one that I think hits me weir- weirder than that one is the dad from Boy Meets World in American History X. Uh, you're not gonna be. You're not gonna like this, but I haven't seen either of those things. <laughs> uh, Boy Meets World would make sense. You're a little young for that one, but like his dad in the movie was kind of like supposed to be the all American dad, right? Okay. And he's kind of portraying that in American History X, but he's also portraying that as like a fireman who is dealing with affirmative action and kind of racist. Right. He's watching his white firefighters lose out to black firefighters. And that's kind of where the racism creeps into the main characters' lives. But you're, the idea, like, to people of the generation that I'm from who watched that movie, that character was put in there bl- blatantly to screw with you and make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Because you're look at, you're used to seeing him as a, the American dad. Wow. Like, he is, he is the quintessential, like, everybody's favorite dad. The dad you wish you had. And the scene that this dark racist streak through him really, really hits you in the heart. Granted, that 70s show came out way after RoboCop, and that was not a thing. But it has the same effect on us mostly. They just didn't know (laughs) that they were doing that. It it is kind of a surprise to see him in this like really, really dark role. Because the guy, like I said, he's kind of a Joker character. You know, he's just a complete sadist. He is, is wild. Like he just, and he enjoys torturing people and blowing people up. And and that's Verhoeven in general. Like all of those characters are all lunatics. Like they, they're like little cats playing with mice when they're playing with these guys. Like they're all having fun. <laughs> I love this movie because it's archetypal, I think in a way. So when we're introduced to this mob boss, you see him as this wild man. And you're like, there's no way this guy is controlled by anybody because he's just a wild card. You know, he just does what he wants, whatever. He's motivated by his own narrow aims. You know, that that's what he does. He just, whatever he wants. But then you find out that actually that kind of guy is on a leash. And you can look at him as almost a proxy for some apparently autonomous tin pot dictator somewhere else. You know, you hear about a Saddam or, you know, some uh, small-time South American or Central American dictator who's just a lunatic. And you're like, oh, my God, this guy's out of control. But in reality, a lot of the time, those guys are actually kind of the front men for a, a larger but more secretive corporate interest behind the scenes. And I, I just love the way this movie sets that up. The director reveals the relationship between the business and the mob only when it's the, the business interest that's being threatened or challenged. So the upstart guy who comes up with the RoboCop program, who is trying to please the old man, I don't think the upstart guy has any, like, he doesn't care about justice or anything. He just wants to kind of climb the corporate ladder. He's a amoral actor. Exactly. But he's still doing the thing that would further the interest of the more or less naive, benevolent corporate leader. He, he represents how in a perfect capitalist system, things should function, where... He doesn't care whether or not – all he cares about is that it makes something that will sell. He's the intrepid entrepreneur 
the the CEO is like the ideal of America. And the second in command is the military industrial complex. Like that's what these characters are, you know? They're undermining what the market wants to sell what they want. Yeah. So then when the upstart guy is cornered, the mob boss comes in, reveals that he's working for the second in command, the military industrial complex character, and kills him. So now all that is remain to be done is get rid of the Robocop himself, who Jesus, we haven't even said what exactly RoboCop means. I'm sure everyone should know what this is, but basically the RoboCop character was a police officer, a man, a normal guy who got blown away. Murphy. Trying to apprehend right, Murphy. He got blown away trying to apprehend the mob boss and his crew. And I mean, they just like blew his hands off with shotguns and shot him in the head. It's really bizarre. <laughs> well, it's it's meant to be a comedic scene. That's what the thing is. It's it's designed to be super over the top. Like that's that's Verhoeven's, Verhoeven's thing. Like hyper violence for the sake of comedy. Right. Yeah. It, it was ridiculous. Like they're just blasting him with shotguns over and over and over again. The guy should be dead, but instead he's just on his knees screaming the entire time. It's it's crazy. But then they finally shoot him in the head and blah blah blah. He's dead. But they take him back to the hospital. And the upstart guy who has this RoboCop program in his mind, they actually apply it and they turn him into a uh, police cyborg. They wipe his memory and all that. We'll, we'll have more to say about that here soon. But they wipe his memory, <laughs> turn him into the perfect police officer and let him loose on the streets. And at first, you know, he's just cleaning up. He's great. No one can get away from him. He's he's not murdering innocent people or anything. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Well, and and he's infallible, and in that like those those shots that you get human error, and like oh my god, you got the hostage situation, and the guy's behind the girl. Well, he's a good enough shot because he's a m- machine that he never misses. Yes, and so he takes the shot between her legs and shoots the guy's dick off. <laughs> yes, I enjoyed that. Which a human being would never ever do for the risk of hitting the person, but they're making it seem as if well the robot would never miss. So like you know he gets to be. He's a super cop, more more of circumstance than anything else, surprisingly. Absolutely. This is deemed, I mean, and obviously it is a success. At first, the program's a success. And so the guy who came up with the program is bragging about how crime is going to be gone in like 40 days or so. I think it was him who made that proclamation in one of the TV uh, announcements. But whoever it was, like, there was a lot of optimism behind this RoboCop thing, this program. But then things kind of take a turn, don't they? With the RoboCop. Well, I guess it depends on perspective. Part of the RoboCop is that they used a biological base for the RoboCop. They used an actual cop. Now, this is kind of silly in that if they wiped his memory, he's not going to remember being a cop. And that's part of what they wanted to keep was his cop knowledge. Right. But if you wipe his memory, then they lose it anyway. So I don't get what they were going for in that respect. Either way, they don't get everything. There's like residue of his memories. And... What ends up happening is he gets triggered by a criminal that he runs into, and that triggering basically brings back his the memories of his death. And so he goes on a war path. Now, mind you, he's still doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's kind of in more of a detective role than a street cop role at this part, mm-hmm. because he's now hunting down the people that killed him. Yeah, but when you say warpath, like just to be clear for everybody, this is not the 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 robot gone haywire story where he just starts butchering people indiscriminately he's still very much acting according to his like good cop programming so he's specifically seeking out these individuals and not like harming anybody else not destroying anything else he's just very effectively trying to get to the top of this mob structure that we described and he follows that structure all the way to the top and who's the top of that structure the corporation that built him (laughs) he's second in command and this is where he learns is he's trying to kill the big criminal at the top that he can't do it. And why can't he do it? Yep. There's a directive four. So he had like these three prime directives that describe what it is to be a good cop. You know, like don't kill the innocent, protect and serve, whatever the hell they were. But directive four in his system had been classified up to this point. When he tries to arrest the second in command of the, the corporation after he discovers you know, how corrupt this guy is, it's basically revealed that directive four is if you ever try to arrest an officer of this corporation, you'll turn off, which is weird because then he doesn't turn off like they could have just said you can't do it, but whatever. He's not able to arrest this guy. And then he's attacked by the the non-human 
ED-209, which is just a gigantic walking battle tank. If you're familiar with Metal Gear, you'll... Uh, oh, and it's stop motion. See where Kojima got his... Uh, you'll see where Kojima got his uh, uh, influence for the appearance of the Metal Gear. But uh, So then they have a big robot war, and it's great. But yeah, Directive 4 is you can arrest an officer of the corporation. And he, def- he defeats the ED-209 with its mortal enemy, Stairs. Exactly. <laughs> the robot... Can't go downstairs, which I love. Well, but that's what's that represents something to me that's super important, which is when you stop trying to serve market functions and just serve your own functions, you're going to create a subpar product. Yeah, because you're not looking to make anything. Like you, you, you have a very narrow vision for what this product is because you're not trying to meet a need. Mm -hmm. You know why? Why would you have thought something that has to go up and down stairs? You were just going to plant this in front of buildings and have it shoot anyone who came there that was wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah, well, and it's also entirely realistic because, you know, we've seen these Boston Dynamics robots and stuff, and it took them a long time to actually be able to go up and down stairs. Like, that was a serious issue for these. They're a little too good at it for my taste these days, but... Oh, absolutely. But back then, you know, not that many years ago, stairs were actually an issue for these robots. And that's just the sort of thing that they would miss. And I love it in this movie because it's also sort of like deflating the balloon slowly, like this anticlimactic defeat almost seems more realistic when we're dealing with this intense, over-the-top, dramatic combat situation. Because you're watching this movie and these two robots are fighting and you're like, how could this get any more dramatic? And how does the fight conclude? Uh, The thing can't go up and down stairs. But of course, Robocop, being partly man, can. And it's like, that just seems perfect. There's no better way to do that. (laughs) The thing is just kind of groping for the ground because it just tries to go down the stairs. It just can't. It's hilarious. So, you know, at this point you reach where he's now tried to, he's tried to kill. So the guy, he's outed himself to the criminal and no, he can't do anything about it. So he's, a burn notice is put out for Robocop, essentially. Mm Mm-hmm. And who's put on that job of actually killing him? It's the mob. You know, the corporate, the second in command is like, all right. Well, it's the mob and the police. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting, I'm mixing that up. You're right. They sick everybody on him. Yeah. Because by this point, how does the movie, okay. Well, I guess it was interesting because ultimately the mob and the police serve the same function to the corporation. Right. They just kind of serve it in different ways. The final showdown occurs after he deals with the mob, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. So because he deals with the mob boss first and then makes his way to the corporation. But yeah, OK, he deals with them twice. I'm, I'm getting confused in my head, but now I remember how it goes. The ending of the whole thing essentially is that he he's he does. He manages to get away and then they send the mob after him. Mm-hmm. He escapes the mob eventually works his way back to the corporate building. Now it's business hours and stuff. So he he goes to the actual boss, like the owner of the company and explains what happens. And it gives us our favorite, it gives you, it gives you the moment that you want your, your perfect, uh, your perfect catharsis where he goes, tells the second in command, you're fired. At which point RoboCop goes, thank you. And then shoots the dude out of window. <laughs> right. Cause he's not an officer of the corporation anymore. Exactly. Great. And I love the effect of the guy falling from the window. His arms are absurdly long for some reason. It's, it's great special effects. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, in the end, justice is served. They do the thing where, you know, the, the head of the corporation, I think, is like, what's your name, son? And he says, Murphy. Murphy. He gives his human name, and then the movie just ends. You know, it's 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 cute. It's very cute. Well, and that's that's one of the other uh, elements of this movie, is because you, you, you obviously we start wading into transhuman territory. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, as you've gathered, you should be putting something together. The 80s and 90s was all about transhumanism. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only thing anyone cared about, science fiction. And it's interesting how, I guess, transhumanism has manifested in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah, it's different now. It used to be more like people actually becoming these robotic things, whereas now it seems more, at least for me, I see more of a focus on the actual digital presence of the human mind. Mm -hmm. You know, like people spreading their consciousness out across various machines. That's practically how we're living as transhumans every day. Well, and I think that that's actually part of the sale. Mm-hmm. Because you and you, you try selling '90s people, hey, there's going to be this alternate world where we can go to and like become different. 
that's kind of going to be near as cool as, hey, how would you like to be able to jump 10 stories in the air? Right. Um, so, like, you, you, you pitch the idea of transhuman being, you know, transhumanism, what technology can offer being, you know, this grand thing. And what it actually ends up being is more of this, like, thought, thought, thoughtful thing. And if you go back to, like, all the people from the, oh, God, the whole transhumanist movement, you know, and look back at the guys that are writing in the 80s, 90s, we, they always knew what they wanted. Like, they were always going for the singularity. Like, us all becoming robotic consciousnesses. The with, the with the getting there was and getting everyone on board, I think, was more of a sales technique because human beings can think of, you know, as I put it, mutant league football. Mm-hmm. God, I wish mutant league football was how we did football. Why am I not getting my roided out freaking robots? <laughs> and also, there's like an ethical uh, justification baked into that, which is, you know, better prostheses for people who are amputees or veterans or whatever, you know. So mm-hmm. it's really easy to wrap your mind around why we would want to develop actual like robot bodies, you know, organ replacements, whatever. It's easy to see why that would be the first place that people go. But I think that you know, that's like overt and obvious transhumanism, like the man becomes a robot. Fine. But right now, not that that has gone away. I think that's still very much a part of the transhuman conversation and phenomenon. And I don't think we're out, much out of the woods there. I mean, we still have Elon on the scene with his goddamn brain chip and whatnot. But I think that right now, the practical reality that we're living in is transhumanism taking the form of you spreading your consciousness amongst various cybernetic machines, and then all of those machines integrating via the cloud and creating almost a record of your consciousness in a virtual world. And then you interface with that on a, you know, depending on how often you use your phone and computer, you interface with that pseudo consciousness or doppelganger of yourself you know, every minute, every hour. There's that new show, Upload, I think it's called. Okay. On Prime. And the base of the show is that, like, you, you, you at some point, you up, upload yourself into the cloud. Yeah. And I think the, to the idea, I guess, maybe the way they would sell this would be, eventually we can have a heaven where everyone who ever lived is in this cloud. They're imprinted. And then you don't, you never lose the, you never lose the human mind mm-hmm. of anyone. And so we have, could have an infinite number of human beings problem solving infinitely yeah, without the need for wasting resources, I guess, is what they, you would say. Now, that's not taking into account what the electricity to run all of these crazy quantum computers would require. Right. Also, ignoring the fact that, is that thing ever truly human or is it just electronic impulses in a program that someone wrote to feel human? Right. So I would say... First of all, you know, people people proclaim that you know, one day we'll be able to upload our consciousness. One day, one day, one day. I'm like, what do you mean one day? You've been doing it every day for the past, you know, when when did the iPhone come out? We've been doing that. It's a gradual process. It's not like suddenly this is a thing that's available and you do it in one take. We've been training this AI and the collection of cybernetic machines that take up our lives and make up our lives. We've been training them for years. And we've been slowly but consistently and chronically imprinting upon them various human behaviors. And the longer you spend with these machines, the more you're imprinting upon them, I think, your conscious behavior patterns, especially as the machinery gets more sophisticated. You know, they can track your eyeballs. So where's your attention going? Years ago, even, I remember reading about how I think it might have been Google. They were able to track where you would hover your mouse. So not even what you would click on but where you would just kind of like leave the cursor to hover over a link because people they found that people did that when they were like kind of on the fence about something. How about this? Every website yeah. that exists right now that utilizes pop-ups for marketing has a setting called exit intent. And you know what that means? Do I want to? It reads your, it reads your mouse. And when it think when you start making the motions mm, of like scrolling of, I want, of, I want to close this page. It then sends you a pop-up. Right. Okay. <laughs> it knows how the motion of how you would move a mouse to leave the page feels and looks like. Mm-hmm. At which point it then feeds you the marketing. So with the proper machinery, if the machinery were only sophisticated enough to collate all of this data involving human behavior and attention, the machine could just collate all of that, then you've already got consciousness uploaded. Because we've been imprinting ourselves behaviorally upon this machinery for years and years. Now, I should say that, do I think that 
correlated data that takes the form of a behavior pattern, which you might call consciousness, is that actually human? Is that actually you? Is that your consciousness uploaded? I don't think it is at all. But a lot of people would say, oh, sure, yeah, you can upload your consciousness. I don't believe that's a thing, but we don't have to get into that right now. But then you get into what is the difference between it being human when your brain functions the same way. It is electrical impulses. Yeah, but the body is not just a brain in a vat. You know, like you've got neurons in your gut and the brain is 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 recognizing patterns based on stimuli that are coming in through your nervous system, which is, of course, a diffuse system. You know, I don't think it's people like to compare the brain to a computer, but I don't think that's an adequate picture of the human body. You know, the human experience is the body, like the whole body Mm -hmm. is our sensory apparatus. And that is what is actually making our experience. If you were theoretically able, I think, to remove my consciousness, whatever that means, from my brain and put it on a hard drive, it would cease to be human because the human experience is lived through the body. I would then be a different kind of being. I'd probably lose my mind and be feeling very claustrophobic. I'm sure you've read the studies on the military trackers. Sure. The Native American studies that they did. Mm -hmm. And then they tested their tracking ability before and after they cut their hair off. And there was non-negligible difference. Absolutely. And so there are a lot of people that believe like your hair itself is actually part of your functioning nervous system because basically it, it extends your, it extends out into the world, your ability to touch things. Right. So I, I can tie that to RoboCop very easily because I think that it's a fallacy and a mistake that comes out of our materialist and mechanistic perception of life and culture that wants to see pretty much every part of the human body as allegorically the same as a certain type of machine. So the brain is a computer, the heart is a pump, this sort of stuff. And, you know, we could talk about where that comes from another time, perhaps. But I think that that's a fundamental error, because it segments the body and the human experience into parts that are in and of themselves isolated. Whereas I think it makes a lot more sense to describe the human body and experience as a holistic collection of various parts, but no part in and of itself is an adequate picture of the whole. So the brain is not the seat of consciousness. The entire body mm-hmm. is the seat of consciousness. The brain is just a part of it. So, you know, we talk about the, the Indians with their hair and that being a part of how they're able to interact with the world. I think that's a very important lesson that our modern scientific materialist culture would probably scoff at or at the very least try to explain away as a phenomenon having to do with you know static electricity or something but in the in the movie robocop uh, as like you said they wipe his memory and yet somehow some of the humanity seeps through and how i interpreted that was not so much that like they missed something in his brain when they were wiping it The way I interpreted that was the very fact they left any biological material there at all. There's somewhere in that biological material imprinted the human memory. It doesn't even have to do with the brain per se. I just think the reality of leaving that biological material there is kind of the escape hatch. So are we getting existential and metaphysical and going, you know, is there something called is there something called a soul in a human being that you can't dissolve down to just a brain and electrical impulses? Absolutely. You have to. Have you ever, there are studies that have been done. Uh, A good book to read on this is the holographic universe. There have been studies where they'll take like mice or rats and remove the centers of the brain that have been associated traditionally with memory. Okay. And like problem solving, and they'll just take them out. And then, sew the things head back up and put it back in a maze that it used to know with the memory centers gone. And guess what? The rat does the maze as if it remembered it. Uh, And there are multiple studies. uh, That's not the only version of that study. Basically, what this book argues, again, holographic universe, is that memory is not something that's localized in a certain part of the brain. And the only reason we think it is, is because when you scan a brain and you have somebody remember something, a certain part lights up. And so we assume that must be where it is because we're stuck in this material worldview in which, you know, a memory is a thing that has to be in a place. But what they found is that actually it's, it's more likely some kind of diffuse thing that's imprinted upon the entire system. Well, and the idea, like your brain will, different parts will start lighting up if you remove parts that used to do something. Your brain will learn to do the same function somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an adaptive and corrective organism. The one thing I think that makes it, that I... 
it does make things difficult is when you when you sever the back and forth between your left and right. That's like the real big injury where you you start losing the ability to do things really. Sure. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that like, you know, brain injury isn't a thing. <laughs> you know, of course it is. And of course there's some kind of material connection to cognitive ability. I wouldn't deny that. My only point is that I don't think that it's as cut and dried as, you know, you can wipe somebody's memory or you could take their consciousness and like physically remove it from one thing to another thing, one container to another. The brain and consciousness are far more complicated than that. And, you know, we know about phenomena like muscle memory, you know, where you can just act. And I, of course, that activity has to do with the brain and it probably originates in the brain. And yet, I don't think it's entirely crazy to suggest that perhaps that memory would also exist within the performative organs themselves. So like, you know, if you have a muscle memory of how to throw a football, sure, the brain is responsible for that memory, but your arm is probably a part of it too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like memory solely lies in the one area and not the rest of it. So all of this is to say that the RoboCop character, Murphy, uh, when he experiences his memories, they always come following a certain stimuli. So he finds out basically who he is after he encounters his partner, his former partner, and she says his name and that sticks in his head, Murphy, Murphy, Murphy. And then he winds up finding his killers. And then he winds up finding his home where his wife and child used to live, but now don't. And then when he goes to his house and he walks through the rooms, that's when he starts getting these like strong flashbacks. It's associated with the actual the place, right? There's a stimuli that occurs and that's what brings the memory back. So, you know, maybe we're I'm trying to make too much of this silly movie, but I think that it actually is a good metaphor for maybe the intrinsic failures of transhumanism that so long as there is humanity, so long as there's a biological entity, the utopian vision of being able to turn a human being into you know a, a grand cybernetic organism there's there's always going to be like that point of failure does that make any sense like you just can't you can't ever completely turn the human being into something that's perfectly mechanistic well i'm glad you actually brought up a book that was one thing i did i i wanted to make sure that we're, we're, we're still doing because so much of this for me is for you to introduce people to more of the history and the you know background that they wouldn't have been exposed to. Um, I'm curious if there's any other books that you have that really really triggered you know an association with the content that this movie had. Yeah. So, well, one of them is called The Age of Spiritual Machines. That's by Ray Kurzweil. Everyone should know him. He's the Singularity guy. It's also the cross-dressing guy. But... <laughs> oh, right, right. The virtual virtual trans guy. His, uh, for people who don't know, he came up with uh, like a virtual avatar years ago. And he was like, yeah, it's a, it's a lady. I forget what he named it, but it was like a, a woman. Like in the virtual world, this is pre-metaverse, but. Of course I'm going to have tits. <laughs> Why would I not? Right. Like he made, he identifies as a woman in the virtual world, which is interesting. But he wrote a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines in 1999. He says a lot in that book. Like it's, it's definitely worth a read if you're concerned with this kind of stuff, but. One of the things he says is that in the future, right about now, your relationship with your computers, and this would mean smartphones and stuff too, your relationship with them will be so constant and so complete that we'll reach a point where no human being could ever even hope to know you as well as your computer knows you. The, the knowledge of yourself can only be perfectly transferred to this computer because you're interacting with it on every level of interaction, if that makes sense. So from the most mundane activity all the way to the most grandiose activity, you're filtering everything you do through this computer. So it's going to know you on every level. And so what he says is that basically we're going to come to a point where human beings will no longer be able to experience love for one another. The only thing you'll ever be able to actually feel love toward is your computer. So that's interesting. Another book that came to mind is, uh, well, of course, go back to basics, The Human Use of Human Beings. Everybody should read this book. It was written in 1950 by Norbert Wiener, who is the guy who coined the term cybernetics. And that's just a book all about how cybernetic theory applies to human society 
Uh, for people who aren't familiar with that, you could also listen to my episode 20 of the Story of Nowhere podcast. I talk about Norbert Wiener and kind of introduce cybernetic theory in that doomsday device episode. And um, another book I, I should mention is called The The Rise of the Machines by Thomas Ridd, which is just a history kind of of cybernetics and robotics from World War One, basically up until uh, basically up until now, till maybe like 2010. So that's a really good history. But it's interesting because during Vietnam, I want to say probably into the 70s, but maybe even as early as the very late 60s, the U.S. military actually was developing quadrupedal and bipedal walking battle tanks. And there are pictures of them in this book. Uh, you could look them up. And they're essentially elevated carriages that either have four or two legs that were designed to walk through the jungle terrain of Southeast Asia because it was found, you know, it was too difficult to get a wheeled carriage through there because of the the variability in the, the top, topology. Jesus Christ, I can't talk. And also even like tanks with treads. It was just too difficult to get through these areas. So they had the idea of um, actually having a machine with legs that would be better suited to traverse this terrain, which is what we see in RoboCop. But the funny thing was, they never actually wound up being able to deploy these things. Guess why? Because they kept falling over. It was the same staircase problem. Like the terrain was too unelevated that the thing just couldn't walk on it because it would keep toppling over. So that's fun too. It's funny, man. You look at the pictures, you got these these guys trying to drive these things and they're wearing suits and ties and it's, it's hilarious, man. It's hilarious what people would try to do. As an aside, in that book, he also talks about the first drone, which was in 1918, believe it or not. And basically, the way they did it was they stuck a radio receiver in the head of a missile and then strapped the missile on top of like a Model, model A, you know, and gunned it across this bridge in New York and launched the thing off of the top of it and controlled it by radio. And they actually succeeded marginally. That that wasn't combat deployed, but it's interesting to know that even drone technology is pretty much as old as World War One, which is freaky to think about. But whatever. It's an interesting technological history, that book. Was there anything else that you wanted to get in that we thought we didn't touch on in the episode? Well, one thing I think that we we have to at least mention a little bit was the idea of Delta City, which is sort of the end goal for this corporation. It's a utopia, basically. Like they, the movie itself is set in Detroit, and this uh, OCP, the corporation, has this plan to build an entirely new city that would be free from all of the problems that old Detroit, as they call it, would have had. Think smart cities is the idea. Like this is like the the early concept of that. Yeah, it was going to be like a super high tech city. Ostensibly, it was going to be policed entirely technologically. You know, the robots were going to control it. It was going to be orderly and peaceful and great. And the way they were going to get to this utopia is by playing off the police and the mob, essentially in the old city, because in doing so, in creating this artificial conflict. That's the key here. The artificial conflict that's created between the mob and the police, the corporation is then justified to create this like super over the top robotic police force that replaces the police, the real police, thereby getting rid of that human factor that wound up being the downfall of the corporation in the movie. Okay. See, like you see, (laughs) the humanity was actually a threat to the corporation because humans would have been able to say, whoa, hold on, this is fucked up. Mm hmm. So you replace the human being police with robots and then the mob who is also a threat because they're going to turn on the corporate powers one day because they're corrupt criminals. Of course, you know, they don't have any allegiance to these people other than money. So now you've developed, thanks to the mob being a part of this artificial conflict, now you've developed this robot police force who can very easily take out the mob. So it's like a Hegelian system, problem, reaction, solution thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And it's all being managed by what I would describe as this deep state structure that at the at the, the capstone of the pyramid is this corporation. Um, but it's all fundamentally about good and evil being artificially played off against each other in order to produce the replacement for both, which itself is a means to the end of a technological utopia. Yep. So there. <laughs> <laughs> 
what's funny is how like all these movies always end up trying to chase down the context of some utopia. Yeah. Like there, there's some idea of a perfect world that we all carry with us and are willing to make whatever subtle changes to society we have to, to find that thing. When you're fighting for the best possible thing, what is not permissible? The ends justify the means, man. That's the utopian slogan. Uh, I was just reading a book on tribal ethics. Oh. And it was, oh my God, dude. It, I, I got through a first chapter or two and it was just so supremely like angry at the approach this guy was like, essentially it was just, it was a treatise on justifying utilitarianism. Oh, wow. It's like the ultimate ethical choice. Like every decision should be made off of what's for the greater good. Oh my God. You know where utilitarianism comes from, right? Well, you tell the people. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a corporate plot. <laughs> um, utilitarianism comes from James Mill the father of John Stuart Mill, the great classical liberal philosopher. Mm -hmm. James Mill is one of the intellectual fathers of modern utilitarianism. And he was an employee and agent of the British East India Company. So you could see how like utilitarianism was a philosophy that was used essentially to justify colonialism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't really need to think very hard or long to see how that makes sense, Mm -hmm. you know? Like the greater good for the greater number. Well, clearly it's better that we have control over these resources because we're smarter and the superior race. Well, what if the greater number just happens to be Nazis? I think that that's still inherently wrong. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I, utilitarianism is such a bankrupt idea. Uh, but this guy was really, really trying to go for it. And and his, like all of his reasoning was like, well, this is what you would do if you're looking out only for you. I'm like, no, no, it's not. Like he couldn't fathom that doing something for someone else would ever have a positive outcome and that anyone would think about that. Yeah. Like he, he used the, uh, what is it? The prisoner's dilemma where you got the two guys, you send them to the cops and which one, what is, what is the best possible outcome for these guys? And the outcome, the best situation for both of them is that they should lie. Mm. Um, you know, and I'm like, well, not necessarily like then I risk being murdered. Like for me, my best outcome is to maintain my partnership throughout whatever. Yeah. But but like it, it it made human beings seem so stupid as to not weigh the possible future outcomes at all. Like it was just, hey, oh, the world ends after I make this decision. So let's just make the decision that has a good outcome only right now. Don't think three steps ahead. Don't t- think two steps ahead. Like, but that's not how I certainly not how I would make decisions. Does everyone in his world have a thirty IQ? Like I. I was very frustrated by it. Oh, it's there's so many problems with it. I mean, you know, the good generally in utilitarian thought seems to go undefined. You know, it's like, what is what should you do? What's good for the most people? It's like, all right, well, what's good? Moral Tribes by Joshua Green is this. Book. Okay, interesting. Oh my god, I was I put it like listened to an hour or two, and I was furious by the time I was done with just that. I still have another thirteen to go. Any kind of relativistic moral system, and I would say utilitarianism is most definitely uh, under that category. Basically, if you really just boil it down, amounts to might makes right, justice is the will of the stronger. If there is no objective moral standard on which we can agree, the only logical conclusion is that we have to kill each other. And whoever's right, whoever wins is right. That's all your, that's what utilitarian leads to. Look, I just got to kill enough of you so that there's more of us than you, in which case what we say is right. Greater good. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's terrible. I just I, I picked up a book called Moral Tribes and was not expecting a justification of utilitarianism. <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm surprised. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, let's tell them what we're doing next. We have decided that in the next movie we're going to be looking at, this one seems topical to me. It's definitely in, in the zeitgeist of human consciousness. We're going to be covering Children of Men next. Children of Men. So check that out. Folks, go out, you know, like, tell people about us. I'd like to have more interaction with the audience. You know, s- send us messages if you want to at uh, the Road to Hell f- Film Review, po- Road to Hell Film Reviews at uh, nickbacone.com. Yeah, please do. And check out Story of Nowhere podcast, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was actually going to ask you if any of those books that you had were in your, your library that you're, you're selling. No, um, those are all too new. 
in copyright. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, there's plenty of the stuff that I'm sure led up to that kind of thinking in there if you're interested, folks. What's the uh, URL for that? Yeah, uh, storyofnowhere.com slash library is where people can find the small catalog of books that I'm currently publishing and printing and selling myself. Uh, That catalog will be increasing soon. But for right now, it'd be great if you could go over there and maybe pick something up. That's uh, how you can fund my operation. And of course, buy my book, too, if you're really feeling crazy. The most important thing for all of you folks is to keep one eye over your shoulder and the other on the screen. Take it easy. Hell yeah. See ya. Do you have a small business or side hustle? Looking to start one? One of the biggest reasons new businesses fail or never get off the ground at all is not understanding marketing as part of the process. You might have the best product in the world, but if you don't understand how to get traffic and convert it, It'll be all for nothing. If you'd like to avoid rookie mistakes and put your best foot forward, go to nikkipcopywriter.com slash road to hell.